You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the Revolution to fractious Civil War, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome. The History of the Great War premium episode number 14. This episode will be a bit different from the other premium episodes because it will not be part of a multi-part series, which I think is the first one, and also because we will be discussing a much smaller topic. This episode we will be discussing trench raids, a critical activity for all sides during trench warfare, and we will be doing this by first discussing some general information about the practice of trench raiding, or patrolling as some called it, before discussing in a bit more detail the German raids on the Somme front before the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Trench raids were seen by all armies as a critical activity for the troops to perform, uh, relatively frequently on the front lines. And while their execution was different between armies, and they varied in size, type, and duration, their objectives were generally the same. With that in mind, let's first look at some generalizations about trench raids, before discussing the German methods. A trench raid was a concept that was simple on the face of it, as described by Sidney Amott in 1916. Quote, the idea was to crawl out through the German wire and try to get underneath and jump into the first line trench, dispose of whoever was holding it by bayonet, if possible, without making any noise or clubbing over the head with the butt of the rifle. End quote. Some trench raids were small, but others were large and had more in common with battles instead of small patrols, with set piece artillery barrages, multiple units involved, and multiple objectives to try and accomplish. They also came in two main varieties, the stealth raid and then the raid in force. The stealth raid was generally favored early in the war, when everybody was new to the concept, and it was exactly what it sounds like, with units trying to be as sneaky as possible as they prepared for the raid and relying completely on surprise for it to be successful. Stealth raids were often short in duration, with concise objectives that could be quickly and hopefully easily accomplished. If they got caught up in a lot of fighting, it generally would not go very well. The non-stealth raids generally involved more troops, sometimes well over a hundred, and they had the support of a large amount of artillery, machine guns, and other infantry units laying down covering fire. 
Which type of raid was launched depended on a variety of factors, including the location on the front, the exact situation, and the officer in charge of the operation. Regardless of which type of raid was executed, the armament of the raiders was often quite similar. Here is Private Basil Ferrer, describing what he saw before a raid. I do remember seeing our bombers, and I'd never seen them, but they were issued with knob carries with nails in the end, studs. Never seen those before. They were nasty looking things. The idea was you'd throw a bomb down a dugout, and if there were any survivors as they came out, you'd wallop them with this club. End quote. Raids required a very different type of weaponry when compared to the normal fighting during the war, or at least at the beginning. In fact, as the war progressed, you see the weapons of raids and of grand assaults during battle sort of converging. This was because the fighting during the raids usually happened at very close ranges, often resulting in hand-to-hand -hand confrontations in the dark, usually, where a bolt-action rifle was simply not the best tool for the job. Because of this, trench clubs, knives, bayonets, all came to be used in great numbers on raids. There were even items shipped to soldiers from home that would best be described as street-fighting implements, like knuckle dusters, more commonly known as brass knuckles today. These were all found among the equipment of men going out on raids. The use of these type of weapons also had another purpose on stealth raids. Infantrymen, after going through training and being in combat, had a tendency to use their rifles when presented with the threat. Because of this, they had a tendency to give the whole thing away by shooting, <laughs> as often as not, at usually imagined targets in the darkness, phantoms in the night. When presented with a stressful and dangerous situation like the infantry were in, their gun was a hammer, and anything that they saw or thought they saw was a nail. For non-stealthy raids, this was not as much of a problem, but rifles were still not commonly used, because there was just too much fighting that was either in too close or better handled with grenades, especially grenades, or bombs as they were often referred to during the war. It's really hard to overemphasize the importance of these bombs to all armies when launching a raid or trying to capture trenches after, say, 1915, and it's probably one of the aspects of the fighting that is most poorly represented in portrayals of said fighting. Almost always the first step before entering an enemy's position was to throw several grenades into it. Grenades were seen as critical equipment for a raid, and this sort of uh, trickled down into major assaults as well. So by the time you get to 1918, German stormtroopers have big old sacks of grenades that they're carrying with them, much like raiders would have had in 1916. So what was the purpose of these actions? Well, there were several. The first being, as discussed, to keep the men busy. This is seen as a great way to relieve boredom for the men while they were in the trenches, or at least that is what the officers thought. When you hear how the men who were actually in the trenches describe their purpose, you get a slightly different take. Here is Charles Quinnell to give his. Quote, we knew it was a waste of time. It was a waste of time. We hated it. But as time went on to get the information, there was some general behind about 30 miles behind the lines wanting to know who was on the opposite side, and he would send up a message, raid so-and-so and get prisoners. Just like that, you know. He ought to have done the job himself. While reading that statement, I'm reminded of the, I think, the eighth episode of the Band of Brothers series entitled The Last Patrol 
which is has a pretty good film rendition of what a raid probably would have looked like. I, that's World War II, uh, but it was probably somewhat close. And it had some good discussion about how the men reacted to these raids, especially when they believed that they did not serve a huge purpose. My guess is that men from both wars would have had similar feelings on the topic. The second purpose of trench raids was a bit more tangible, in the form of gathering enemy intelligence. This was generally done through the capture of prisoners, who would then be sent behind the lines for interrogation. Obviously, capturing enemy soldiers had its special set of problems, not least of which was the fact that you had to get them and then transport them back without them alerting their comrades. The British private Walter Spence explains, Well, you try to get down to a part of the enemy trench where you thought it was the least man, you see, and you'd grab a prisoner if you could, and of course he'd give a gawk and then the fun started. The final purpose of the raids was generally less tangible, and it was the process of getting troops used to being in no man's land and in action. Raids were often seen as a good way to season new troops, since they offered the men a chance to get out over the top, out in between the lines, and to confront the enemy, all while not compromising any piece of a larger attack that, that sought to gain actual objectives. If a raid failed, then a raid failed. Uh, uh, maybe some casualties were incurred, but that's about it. Raids could get them over their first attack jitters, and hopefully instill in them sort of the spirit of attack. These psychological benefits, or perceived psychological benefits, were very important to commanders during the war. Now that we've covered the basics of trench raids, let's take a step much closer to the action to discuss some of the German raiding activity on the Somme during early 1916. I should note that a lot of this comes from German Army on the Somme by Jack Sheldon. One interesting feature of German patrol activity at this time in, in the war was the fact that they still had not completely figured out the optimal way to do trench raids. Because of this, there was a good amount of writing on the subject by German officers, as they sought to capture their technique and apply them to as many raids as possible, and then sort of trickle that knowledge out to other leaders. You also see a lot of fluctuations in terms of how raids were organized and executed from one area of the front to the other. None of this would prevent them from being successful, though. And from February to April, just one division on the Somme would capture six officers and 50 other British soldiers during their raiding activities. One tactic that they used at this time to secure these results, and I think this goes a long way to show the sort of gamesmanship that was happening in the trenches pretty much all of the time, and this is just one example of this, was a tactic described by General von Stein on February 29th who did a lot of writing on trench raids at around this period. Quote, By bringing down fire on the enemy wire obstacles, using mortars or earth mortars, and more rarely artillery, we lured the British to carry out nightly repair work. They would then be ambushed by our patrols, which were lying in wait for them, and some of them would be captured. While this tactic worked several times for the Germans, the British did eventually get wise to their ploy, and they reacted to it. There were two ways in which they did this. The first was simply to not repair the damaged wire on any kind of consistent basis. And the second was to change up their repair processes. And instead of sending out mostly unprotected repair parties, they sent them out with strong protection units. When they had made these changes, the Germans were then forced to adapt once again. 
Their next plan was to just switch back to going straight into the enemy trenches to try and get some prisoners. General Stein would go on to describe how a specific area was chosen to be a target of a raid. This was a very important decision to make, because if the Germans could raid the proper spot in the line, they greatly increased their chances of both success, and also of getting actual real good intelligence. Quote, selection of the break-in point. Special operations, such as determining the presence of gas cylinders or destroying mine entrances, leave little room for maneuver in the selection of the break-in point. But in other cases, the following conditions must be fulfilled. Ease of isolating the point by defensive fire. Use of covered approaches to and from the target to lessen exposure to artillery and infiltrating machine gun fire. With the area of the front decided, the next question was who was going to carry out the raid. For the most part, there was no special requirement to be part of a raid, other than usually uh, using volunteers, which all sides seemed to have liked to have done. There would be the main assault group, which would be the one that would either go into the enemy trenches or capture the enemy by some other means, and this was the main focus of the raid. However, they were just one group of several uh, that would all have different purposes. The assault group would be supported by rear guards that would cover their retreat, flank protection to make sure that they did not get cut off by enemy units, and the groups of soldiers whose entire purpose was to maintain contact between the raiding groups and the officers in the rear. All of these groups were necessary to help keep the raids, which were dangerous under the best of conditions, from becoming a suicide mission because the greatest fear was having the assault group cut off by other enemy units, especially because the forward groups were usually quite small. Their small size also made speed a priority, and generally raids tried to be lightning fast, with every minute spent in enemy territory causing the danger to grow almost exponentially. For one raid near Beaumont Hamill in early April 1916, here is the operational order given to the men. Quote, on the day of the operation, Patrol groups are to be ready to move in the dugouts of the Linung Hollow around 8 p.m. All members of the patrols are to understand that they may not remain in the enemy trenches for longer than 15 minutes after they leave the start line in the sunken road. Commanders of patrols will give the signal to withdraw by means of whistle blasts. 15 minutes was not very long, especially since that timer started ticking when the raid left its start lines of the sunken road, not when it arrived at enemy positions. After the volunteers were decided and orders were sent out for what would be attacked, then there was generally some very specific requirements about what the men should dress like and what equipment they should carry with them. They had their special weapons, and then they also had to take off their helmets so that they could move in and take off their gas masks at a moment's notice. They also had to take off all of their identification, be they documents or some sort of rank insignia. The goal was to make sure that the enemy would not get any information from the raid team if something went wrong, and there were some men who were either killed or captured. Here is the full section on what should be worn by the men for the orders for that Beaumont Hamel raid that we just talked about. Quote, dress and field equipment requirements. Field caps are to be worn. No shoulder boards or insignia. Identification marks on equipment are to be rendered illegible. No written material in pockets. Belt hooks are to be removed from jackets. 
As a recognition mark, all participants are to stitch white bands to both right and left arms. Two first field dressings are to be carried in the front jacket pockets. Gas masks are not to be taken. Each man is to carry six hand grenades, four stick grenades on the waist, two egg-shaped grenades in the jacket pockets. Two men of each patrol are to carry rifles. The remainder are to carry pistols, each with a filled reserve magazine. And they are also to carry daggers. End quote. As you can see, things were quite specific on what each person should have, and also very different than what was typical battle gear for this point in the war. You will also notice that these men were told not to take their gas masks, uh, which means that there was no gas planned for this attack, which is somewhat odd considering how frequently it was used by raiders. To these raids, Stein also suggests adding some engineers to help deal with any obstacles. The final piece of the preparation for the men was to have a way to identify each other so there would be no friendly fire casualties. For this identification purpose, the Germans often used white armbands worn on both arms, but other armies used other methods for this. Even these men and their supporting units were just one piece of the equation, though, and they were usually given copious amounts of fire support. This came in the form of mortars, which focused on creating gaps in the wire, and artillery, which focused on causing confusion in the enemy positions. Both of these forms of support would fire no more than 45 minutes, with the goal being to accomplish their goals in just 20 minutes. All this fire would happen right before the raid was set to kick off, and they would often mix in gas shells with the more normal artillery. The hope with the gas was not necessarily to kill anybody, although that would happen and that would be okay. Instead, the hope was that it would just cause confusion in the enemy and make them far more concerned with getting their masks on instead of preparing for the raid, which was about to hit them. Even when they got their masks on, it would often take them a few moments to acclimate themselves to it. And these few moments were often critical, because with the speed of the raid, it was often these moments where the assault troops were crashing into the positions. Gas was a tricky mistress, though, and they had to be careful or the wind would blow the wrong direction and hinder instead of help the raid. Generally, gas was a game-time decision made by officers close to the front in conjunction with artillery observers and meteorologists. To facilitate this discussion and all of the other discussions between the raid and the officers in the rear, Stein recommends a lot of telephones. Quote, telephones. The commander of the operation must be linked by telephone to the artillery commander, to the section commander, and to the frontline trenches. If the width of no man land permits assaulting troops to be pushed up near the enemy positions prior to the operation, it is recommended to run a telephone line forward and to man it with a small patrol, which can keep the commander informed immediately about unforeseen incidents. End quote. All of these things were just in preparation for the moment that their raid would begin, and when it happened, it was often fast, quick, and dirty. And just a matter of minutes after the signal to attack, generally a whistle, grenades would be thrown in, followed closely by the men designated to lead. They would shout demands for the enemy to surrender, in a language that they could understand where possible. The enemy would be given a second to respond before more grenades were thrown into the positions if they were still occupied. Then, as quickly as it started, the raid would be over. When it was time to get out, withdrawal happened on pre-planned routes, set up and communicated to everyone involved, generally with covering fire of some sort. 
When it was time to leave, the signal would be given, and hopefully the raiders would disappear back into the darkness. When the raid was over, I'm sure there would have been a good amount of celebrating in the trenches. Prisoners would have been shipped off to the rear for interrogations. Stories would be shared about how Gunther did this awesome thing where he bounced a grenade off a partially open door into a dugout, or something like that, before capturing an entire platoon single-handedly. Then the next day, things would go back to normal. However, in the last section of his outlining of raiding techniques, Stein strongly emphasizes the need for official recognition of successful raids. This could come in the form of decorations, or mentions in order of the day, which I think is like the German equivalent to being mentioned in dispatches for a British soldier, so a pretty high award. Then there was also a solid distribution of iron crosses and other medals. The goal with these commendations was to make sure that if a unit or if a man went on a successful raid, they knew that everybody, all the way up the chain of command, appreciated the effort that they had put in and the risk that they took upon themselves, which would hopefully make them want to do it again in the future. This cycle of constantly raiding would happen for the entire war, with constantly shifting and altering tactics based on the needs of the situation and the area of the front involved, and also the commanders playing games with each other. In a war filled with titanic struggles of thousands and millions of men fighting for months at a time, it was these raids that were like an infinite series of small battles, night after night, which are often forgotten, but for many men made up most of their combat during the war.